Hope y'all are doing well. We are studying the book of Acts together, Blueprint, and hopefully you're seeing that, um, even in that video, you see a bunch of different buildings, and as you see all those different buildings, you realize it's actually not the building. The church is you. You're the church. And so we want to live that out as much as we can. Um, one thing for you before we get started, uh, look underneath you or around you in your chairs. There was a service before you. You'll see a little little sheet of paper for you to vote for deacons. Um, you want to fill that out now because we'll take out the offering later. Um, so while you're searching for that, and you know, feel free to walk around, grab one uh, for those that are eligible for deacon voting, if you will. Um, fill that out. You are voting on the slate. You can go ahead and put it up there. It's up there. Remember, you're voting on this whole slate, so it's yes or no. So if you're like, ah, I don't like that one person, so vote no. You're not voting no for them. You're voting no for all of them. So it's a yes or no vote up and down. Um, and we will have uh, looking at the vote, and then no one contacted me, so we, we, we're assuming that this is going to be as, as per every vote we've ever taken at Remedy on anything, a unanimous 100%, and then we'll um, do their appointment, not Father's Day weekend, which is next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, um, on the 26th. Um, just a reminder, uh, we are in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we will we'll jump in. Uh, we're starting at verse 11, starting at verse 11, so... Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've given us your word. And we thank you that um, we have the ability to know you. We have the ability to be reminded constantly through your word who you are and what you've done for us. I pray that we would all realize just how desperate we are for your presence. In these moments, what a great gift it is to be the church, to gather together, to sing together, to fellowship together, to worship together, and be under your word together. And I pray that we would all see our need to be a part of this every week, and that you would use your word to glorify yourself and to draw us closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the book of Acts. We've been going through it, and we are going to pick up at verse 11. So uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of a reminder of what we looked at last week because it builds into this particular week. So if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, Peter had, in chapter 2, just been filled with the Spirit and had preached a sermon at Pentecost, and now he's living out his faith. You can see in the beginning of chapter 3, he and John are walking to the temple that day for prayer, so they're, they're actively living out their faith. And as they're walking... There's a, uh, a beggar, uh, a lame man, a, a crippled man that had been crippled from birth, never walked, never run, never swam, never done anything, sitting there beside what's called the beautiful gate. And the, the juxtaposition of these two, the opulence of this amazingly bronze, silver, gold gate next to the poor, destitute, um, probably not homeless, but uh, not able to walk for the rest of the night. The, the juxtaposition of these two, the contrast between these two is amazing. And Peter, as he's walking up, says... I don't have any money for you, but I have something better. In the name of Jesus, and if you look at verse 16 in chapter 3, which we'll look at today, it's specifically in the name, you can see in his name, and by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. So faith in the name of Jesus, not in Peter. It wasn't Peter. It was all about Christ. He looks at him and heals him. And so instantly this man's life changes. So it wasn't where this man could get a meal for the day 
and have to go back to begging the next day. Instead, Peter changes his life completely. Now this man is able to um, live as a full citizen, able to work and eat and everything for himself, all able to do it for himself, um, giving this man dignity to be able to do it. And so he changes his complete life. Not only does he change his physical life, but I made the case last week um, that if you look at verse 8 and verse 9, it says the man went out praising God. It says it both times. And so I made an argument that those that praise God generally are believers. And so this man was not only changed physically, but spiritually, and which leads us into the way we want to do mission. We want to, by every means, tell them about Christ as much as we can. But the Lord is also in this, in this world that we live in, given us an opportunity to meet temporal needs. And that's actually part of the mission of God as well. And so you can see what happens after Peter does this. I mean, this is not something he's done before. He saw Jesus do it during his ministry, but he does it for the first time. He's got, I'm going to go for it. I get up in the name of Jesus. And the man gets up and for the very first time runs. And he's literally never walked before ever. And he's standing and jumping and praising and leaping. And even for the very first time because of the Levitical law, never been even allowed into the temple. But it says in the text, I think it's verse 8, that Peter and him and all actually went into the temple, into the presence of God. So, I mean, so many things happen now for this man whose life is completely turned around and and changed. Um, it says entering into the temple in verse 8. And then what's happening there, all the other people are seeing this. And I mean, you've never seen this. We've heard stories. You know, we know Benny Hinn here, healed a guy of blindness, had a rich washer on and all that kind of stuff. But like, that's a joke, y'all. That really was on TV. But like, we've seen these kind of things and we think, okay, is that stuff really happened? But in this instance, it really did happen. It really did happen. And so imagine being there. This isn't Jesus. This is one of Jesus' disciples doing it. That's, that's completely different. And so when that happens, it says what happens is at the very end of verse 10, they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. How did this happen? How can just a man do this? Well, Peter, sensing everyone questioning and their wonder and amazement, is going to stand up and preach for a second time. If you look in chapter 2, he's already preached the, the sermon at Pentecost. He likes preaching now. It's his deal. He's been restored by Jesus in John 21. He's like, I'm going to do it again. I'm going for it. So he sees in the, the, the wonder and amazement out of all of them. And he knows he must, he must address it because there's men of Israel. There's, there's people who are Jewish that can understand this because they, they know the word. And so uh, I'm going to read the text in verse 11. Uh, while the man still cl- clung to Peter and John... All the people ran to them at the the portico called Solomon's, astounded. I mean, they're astounded. How did this happen? And when Peter saw it, the it is the astonishment of all the people present. He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Again, completely pointing them to Christ. We'll get to that in a second. The God of Abraham. Now, remember the title that he started the entire sermon with. Men of Israel. So, all these things he's going to do are, are not, you know, new information to them. When he says men of Israel and then starts talking about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Jacob they, know, they know who that is. They know who those people are. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified a servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. 
and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and, and know the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. We'll get to that, I promise. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses, now he's going to speak, speak of some of those people he's talking about, the, the old fathers. Moses said, the Lord God will raise you up, uh, uh, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, and they know who that person is. They know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they also know, again, Moses and Samuel. And here he's going to mention Abraham again. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets. Amazing statement of the covenant of God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him, that's Jesus, to you first to bless you by turning everyone from you from your wickedness. So in this particular sermon, Peter stands up and explains everything that's happening. And so what we're going to do is that we look at this, this sermon, which basically takes place from 12 to 26, but we're looking at 11 through 26. Um, there's, there's three major facets of the sermon that as we look at it, I want to, uh, I want to look at. And as we look at these, these three major facets, we'll get a, a good idea of what's this message that Peter is communicating to these men of Israel. And as we look at these three major facets, he's going to talk about Christ. He's going to talk about the amazing forgiveness we can have and what that means and, and the plea he makes and then the benefits that come from. So uh, the first thing, the first facet of the sermon I want you to see is this, is Peter's radical Christ-centeredness. Boom. Right now. All right, it's coming. All right, the first facet is this, Peter's radical Christ-centeredness. You can see it mainly in verses 12 through 16. Um, he, he, he has many appellations or many names or uh, ways he wants to describe Jesus. He doesn't just say Jesus and Christ. Instead, he, he has many words he uses. So this, this is what I want you to remember. Before we get into the meat of the sermon, the message of the sermon, we need to, we need to savor a little bit of the, this Christ-centeredness that Peter has of Jesus. Not only just to understand just how changed Peter is, but even for your own benefit, as we look at these things about Jesus, for your own personal edification and, and worship, think about these things about Jesus and let your heart become um, inflamed and in, in love with Christ for these things that he has done for us. Peter has several ways that he describes uh, Jesus. Peter is radically Jesus-centered in this sermon. It's an overflow, I believe, of walking with, with Jesus for three years. He was with Peter, Peter was with Jesus every day for three entire years. And as he's with him, walking with him every single day, he becomes Christ-centered in the way he thinks, especially after the filling of the Spirit. What would it look like 
if you physically walked with Jesus three years? Can you imagine if you physically walked around, like Peter, walked around with Jesus for three entire years? If you did, you would be, I believe, radically Christ-centered the way Peter was, having seen all that he did. What if you had seen the miracles? What if you had seen the transfiguration, like Peter? What if you were one of the inner three? The, the Christ-centeredness that you would have, like Peter, I think would be, um, would be amazing. Now, this is all post-putting uh, back together. John 21, where Peter's restored. So remember, this is post-restoration, filling with the Spirit in Acts 2. And now he is completely Christ-centered. So before we look at these, these terms or these designations that he's going to talk about, I want you to remember this. Peter's radical Christ-centeredness from being with Jesus every day for three years absolutely possible for you. You don't have to have a flux capacitor and travel back 2,000 years and walk with Jesus. You have the Word. And you are able to... That's a Back to the Future reference. Some of you don't know. Um, you don't have the ability to go back. None of us do. But we have the Bible. We have the ability to be with Christ every single day, to be radically Christ-centered by being with Him physically in the Word and being with Him so that it can make us radically Christ-centered as well. So as we do that, I want you to see the, the words that Peter uses to describe Jesus. And that, that's going to be a foundation as we go into the message, but also just personal edification and growth for your soul to be re-reminded of all these beautiful things about Christ. The first thing is that he calls him as a servant. If you look in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. It also calls him a servant in verse 26. So he ends it with in verse 26 also, God having raised up his servant. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But 2,000 years ago, um, they, they decided whenever they were looking at the, the, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, we're going to translate the Old Testament also into Greek so that you could, theoretically, um, have an Old Testament Greek and a New Testament Greek. But we have to take these Hebrew words and translate them into Greek. So when they did that, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, verse 50, chapter 52, chapter 53, when it talks about um, the servant, that word they use when they translate it, that, that translation, that Greek Old Testament, that's called the Septuagint. Septuagint just means 70 because the story goes that it was 70 men that translated the... Commonly, if, you, if you're reading, if you just see a capital L and a capital X, capital X, LXX, that just means Septuagint. And that just means the Greek version of the Old Testament. That word they use in chapter 52 and chapter 53 of Isaiah in the Greek, in the Septuagint, is the same word we see here in the Greek. So let's look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and get a great picture of what we, what I think Luke means when he writes this word servant or as he hears this word being used by Peter in the sermon. Isaiah chapter 52 Start at verse 13. Behold, my servant. So this is a prophecy of the coming Jesus, the servant, the suffering servant that would, be, that would be willing to come. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Verse 53, cha chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, Jesus, grew up 
before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But yet he was despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So we can see, as we see this servant, he was a man acquainted with sorrows. But listen to what the suffering servant did. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carries our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him that brought us peace. And with his stripes, with his um, pain that he received from all the physical pain, with those stripes, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So when he calls him the suffering servant here, the allusion to Isaiah 52, especially for the men of Israel, whenever he says that, they are hearing this and realizing that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53, that he is willing, Jesus is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. He is willing to give his own life to suffer for his people. As the suffering servant, as the servant, he is willing to give himself all the way unto death so that his people can know life. K-N-O-W, know life. And so the first word he uses is servant. The radical Christ-centeredness as Peter sees Jesus and all the different facets and descriptions you can use, and they're all true. One of them is servant. But the other one is glorified. Right before the word servant, it says that he has glorified his servant. So we have a picture here of the contrast of you have someone, the servant, radically beneath everyone, willing to suffer and die, but is infinitely glorified as one can be. He's both the suffering servant and glorified. He's high and lifted up. He is the centerpiece of all glory. When we get into heaven, as we see in Revelation 5, there's a throne room and sitting on the throne is Jesus. Isaiah 6, that's Jesus on the throne where his train's filling the robe. His robe is filling, what do you know what I mean? Filling up the whole room with the train of his robe. So, I mean, it's all about Christ and he is the highly exalted one. As it says for us in Philippians chapter 2, because of his obedience all the way to the point of death, what has God done for Jesus? It says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this, even in the beginning of Peter's radical Christ-centeredness, we see a picture of a suffering servant, but also as the glorified one. The reason why, one of the reasons why Sinclair Ferguson points out that he's the glorified one is this. He uses, you know, crazy lofty theological language, which is very easy to understand. I'll explain it. Jesus is the man to enter into the intended eschatological destiny of all men. That just means this. When Jesus came back after his death, burial, and resurrection, he came back in his resurrection body, glorified body. You, you probably heard some stories about how it was radically different. He's walking through walls. You know, he's, he's, he's scaring people maybe, making meals, but he's still eating. He has this glorified body. This body, that same kind of body he has is what we'll all get. Whenever we die, whenever we go to heaven, one day when our soul and our body are put back together, we're going to have a glorified body, just like Jesus, where we won't sin. 
And the point that Sinclair Ferguson is making is the reason why he's the glorified one is because he's the very first person to receive that glorified body. All of us will receive it last. Second, third, fourth, whatever. And so he says, Jesus is the man, the first man to enter enter into that intended eschatological destiny of all men. He's the first one to be glorified of all humanity. So when the incarnation happened, Jesus became man. He remains man forever and God. But he wasn't man before the incarnation. But now he was the first one. So all the glory, since he's the first one to do it, be glorified and receive that glorified body. And we're just gracious recipients of a glorified body, not for our glory, but for his. All the glory goes to him. So the first two things we see, he's the suffering servant. He's also the glorified one. The next one, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one. These are names that are only given to God, denoting the deity of Christ surely, but also that Christ is holy and righteous. He is as pure as the driven snow. There is no one more holy, more pure, more righteous than him. And the good news of the gospel is that he imparts that to us and bestows upon that, that title. So he's the servant. He's the glorified one. He's the holy and righteous one. But also, as you see in verse 15, he's the author of life. He's the author of life. He's the creator of life. Or some, some versions say maybe pioneer. He's the beginner. He's the first one. And when we think of author of life for Jesus, we should think of this in a twofold manner. One, the Genesis 1 manner. Like literally, he is the creator of man, the author of their life. He creates us. He was actively present in creation in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. The let us make man in our image is um, in the plural. So this is Jesus doing that. But also, he's not only the author of physical life, as Hebrew, Hebrews 12.2 says, he's the founder of our faith, the founder or the author of our faith, the author of our salvation. So he, when we think of this in a twofold manner of him being the author of life, he's the one that gives us physical life, but he's also the one that imparts to us spiritual life. He's the author of your spiritual life. You do not receive spiritual life without him giving it to you. So this next description of Christ that Peter has is that he is the author of your physical life. This means that all the sources of life that anyone ever has all find their way back to Christ as the beginner of all things. So Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. Jesus Christ is the glorified one. Jesus Christ is the holy and righteous one. Jesus Christ is the author of all life. And the last one that he uses is in verse 22 and 23. He he shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet. I should read 22 first, not 23. So it's, you know, at least in sequential order. (laughs) Moses said that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And you should listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every person who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. So this prophet that Moses speaks of is not like all the other prophets. We know that if you read the Old Testament, the prophets in their day with their contemporaries were generally um, recipients of disdain. Whenever they would tell the people you need to repent, prophets had no glory in their hometown. But as history would bear it out, then it 
as people in the next generations would look back at those prophets, Isaiah, look back at those prophets, Micah, look back at those prophets, Ezekiel and Habakkuk or whatever, they would see, oh, they were right. And so generally, you know, after death, the prophets were lifted up as, as great men. So here we are in the year zero, or I guess we're more in the year 35 or so. Um, they're looking back at those prophets and they have great love for the prophets. And they're looking at Moses because this is to the men of Israel. And they're saying, while there are many prophets, there is one, if you will, capital P prophet. And he's not like the other prophets. He's the prophet Messiah. He's the one that you must listen to because it means life and death. So the radical Christ-centeredness of Peter is pointing them to the prophet, the prophet Jesus, who is in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this prophet is held in the highest of all regards, where Moses is prophet, uh, I'm sorry, quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15, saying that God's going to raise up that prophet whom you should listen to, and he's the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one who puts everything back together. So, before we even get into the message, it's helpful then for us to see just this amazing Christ-centeredness of this sermon that Peter has and all these different ways to describe. And there could be infinitely more. But these are the ones he uses in this text. Now, um, we've seen the first thing. Is Peter's emphasis on the radical Christ-centeredness of Jesus. The second thing we need to see is Peter's infinite emphasis on this particular man of their need for faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. So the second key facet is Peter's emphasis on faith and repentance. Verses 16 through 19. So we're getting to the message now. We're getting to the message. You can see it in verse 16. And by his name, by faith in his name... And if you look at verse 19, as he looks at them, he tells them, repent. So there's a, there's a twofold message there with, with things in the middle, which we'll look at. But he's telling them, you need to have faith and repentance. These two things are necessary in order to understand the message of God for you, men of Israel. Faith and repentance. We should notice here that Peter standing before his brothers, the men of Israel, whom he loves, and while he will be, um, certainly we would think because they're his loved ones, his, his people, he would maybe be a little bit apprehensive to tell them because he loves them and he cares for them, they know him, he's not. He does not shy away from pointing out man's need for sin and their need to be forgiven. As a matter of fact, he's pretty bold in telling them that you killed Jesus, you denied him, you're the one that let Barabbas go. So boldly he tells them and points out to them their sin. Now, boldly pointing out sin does not equal being arrogant. So there's a way to do this. It's a winsome, loving way to boldly point out sin and people whom you love. But also has to be done winsomely and lovingly and care, uh, carefully. So the second thing is this. Peter's emphasis on faith and repentance. So let's, let's take a look at it. This won't be on the screen. But first I want you to see, as Peter um, boldly calls for faith and repentance in their life, the first thing he, you need to know is that he does it in a loving manner. A loving plea is what he has. Notice how he starts it out in verse 17. What term does he give to these radical sinners that he said just killed Jesus? Brothers. 
So automatically, as a, as a man of Israel, Peter himself, who loves Christ and follows Christ and knows they don't, he still extends to them the designation of, of brothers. So he recognizes that the loving plea to them is to start out by... Con- he, he didn't have to do that. He could have said, so sinners. But no. If we're going to call people to faith and repentance, we must realize that arrogance is not what's needed. Love is what's needed. And he looks at them and says, brothers. And then lovingly moves to the next thing. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, he's not calling them necessarily uh, in a pejorative sense ignorant. Instead, he's saying, there's a piece of information that beforehand, when you did those things in verses 14 and 15, you don't know. There's a piece of truth that you need, that you're ignorant about. So I want to, on behalf of the Lord Jesus, extend this piece of truth to you so that you will not be ignorant. So he's, he does say that they're um, acting in ignorance, but he's doing this in a loving way saying, you need more truth and more truth is what will help you understand the need for faith and repentance. So he calls them brothers. He, he identifies that, that what they need is a piece of truth that they're ignorant. Stott says, when he says that you had ignorance, is in no way saying that he's excusing their sin, that they were, you know, just ignorant of this. And he's not implying that forgiveness is unnecessary, but instead he's showing that forgiveness is now possible by having this piece of information that you need, this truth that you need. And so he says, brothers, let me give you the truth that you need. And here it is. God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that you know that you're well acquainted with. Christ is the one that will suffer, the Messiah and thus, this suffering would be fulfilled. And so, therefore, repent, therefore, and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out. So he beckons them in verse 19. This isn't a, so repent, sinners. Brothers, you're missing out on truth. Let me tell you, it's, it's Christ Jesus who came to die, who would be willing to go forward. That's the information you don't understand. Jesus is the prophet that's been spoken of of old that would come and die. And now that you know that, it's heartfelt and as loving as I can say. Repent now. Come to him. Trust in him. Be forgiven. So Peter's emphasis on faith and repentance starts with a loving, heartfelt plea to them. So, as we look at that, we're going to talk about faith and repentance in a second. What those mean? But let's just stop before we get to that and say, Peter has people here whom he calls brothers, men of Israel. You have people. Who are your people? Who are your brothers and sisters? Who are your unbelieving people? Your neighbors, your family, your co-workers, your roommates. I don't know. But you have, I have people, you have people. We all have people. Who are they? Who are the people that you can make a loving plea to? Maybe they lack information. They just need information. Treat them as brothers and sisters. Call them, give them the truth and call them to repentance. 
So let's talk about faith and repentance. What did that mean? If we're going to, Peter's going to emphasize faith and repentance and our loving plea should involve calling them to faith and repentance. Let's talk about that because I think that that can be difficult sometimes. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, says that faith and repentance, picture a bird, faith and repentance are the two wings of a bird whereby we fly into heaven. And you, you don't fly into heaven, that's a metaphor. <laughs> but imagine a one-winged bird just not going to make it and he's going to fall one of those directions and the same thing, you know. So both are needed, faith and repentance. You need to have faith and repentance in order to have um, forgiveness in Christ and go to heaven. And this is what faith and repentance are. We see faith mentioned in 16. We we see 19 repentance is mentioned. Faith is this. And I I, want to be careful here because in 2016, um, where we talk about faith and spirituality and postmodernism, the terms are so nebulous now they are almost rendered without meaning. So now faith just means faith, and a lot of times, in faith. I believe in belief. I'm just believing that belief will, that faith, I, I, I'm having faith that it's going to work out with faith. I, I have faith in faith. And it's just so like, that doesn't make any sense. There's no object. There's no evidence. That, what do you mean? Christian faith has an object and is based on evidence. And so when we say believe, we don't mean faith in the air or sky or gravity or faith in faith. We're specific. And it's based on reason. And there's an object, a person that it's directed towards. It's not a, not a thing that no one can define. So when we say faith and repentance, I wrote a sentence. This is my own. You can certainly take it and easily improve on it. But this is what... I think the Bible means by faith. Faith is this. Active, present. So we're not basing it on the historical event. I was saved in VBS, so I'm a Christian. When I was nine, active, present, trust in Jesus. Active, present, trust in Jesus. And this faith is in Jesus and Jesus only as our only hope for salvation. Namely, trusting that it's Jesus' cross that we receive complete forgiveness, that we say all of my sin and all of the anger that I deserve was put on Jesus, and all of his righteousness, therefore, is put on me. And I have present, active trust in him and what he's done for me, that that granting or impartation of righteousness given to me is true and real. And it's my only hope that I can be saved. So faith is active, present trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our only hope for salvation. And it's faith in Jesus' cross for complete forgiveness. And not only that, are we forgiven? But then he's granted us the complete ability by the Spirit, comma, by the Spirit, comma, to be able to live for him now as an everyday worshiper. And the worship we do, the, the, the obeying of the commands we do now, this isn't in my sentence, I just, I said it in first sermon, I'm saying it in second. It's not because of duty. It's not because demands put on you. It's all sheer delight for what he's done for us. So faith is active, present, trust, and a person, Christ, based on evidence, based on 
all the historical facts and evidence that show us that Jesus is the person that he said he was, that he was perfect, that his cross was meaningful, that his resurrection actually did happen. And we're trusting in that. Faith, not faith in faith. It's not, oh, I believe in God. Well, a lot of people that aren't believers believe that God exists. That's not what we're talking about. We're trusting in Christ and his work. That's faith. Repentance. Repentance. This is what we mean when we say repentance. So we have to believe that that's happened. Presently trust in Christ for what he's done and that he's granted us. And then repentance. What is that? Two ways to look at it are two things about repentance I want to say. First, repentance is first and foremost recognition that our primary offense of sin has been to God, not a fellow man, but to God. Psalm 51, chapter 51, verse 3. David, who's busted, Nate comes to him and says, you're the man. You're the one that killed Uriah. You're the one that had the adultery with Bathsheba. You're the one that forced her. You're the one that killed Uriah by putting him on the forefront and making Uriah's father now a recipient of a son that shouldn't have died. Psalm 51.3. What does he say? Against you and you only, talking to God, have I sinned. I think Uriah has something to say about that. Bathsheba and Uriah's dad. So repentance is this. First and foremost, it's a recognition that our offense, our sin, is first and foremost primarily against God. David's not erasing the horizontal nature of this, but emphasizing the vertical nature of this with regard to repentance. It's first and foremost and primarily an offense against God. True repentance recognizes that our sin against God, and it's against Him first, and it's a prompt response. So that's the first thing about repentance we should recognize. But there's also a second thing about repentance you should recognize. It's against God. And secondly, repentance is also always a turning away from the sin that you're involved in in light of the graciousness of God and the provisions of God. So when you repent, you don't say, I've sinned against you, God. I'm going to go do it again. I've sinned against you, God. I'm going to go do it again. That's not repentance. That's not metanoia in the Greek. Repentance is, I've sinned against you, God. And now, this particular sin, I'm turning away from it completely. And I'm only coming towards you. The sin that held me, I'm metanoia, turning completely away from. And going in a 180 direction now against it. So sin, I mean repentance is, first and foremost, a recognition that it's done before God. And secondly, a turning away. I don't do that anymore now that I'm in Christ. Because of the gracious provisions that whenever you say, I repent, he says, with this amazing, gracious, lavishness, forgiven. You're forgiven. And he never stops. He never stops lavishing grace upon you for your sin. Derek Thomas says it this way. Repentance is necessary, but it is not the basis on which forgiveness is given. Rather, it is the sign of the genuineness of the faith that lays hold of Jesus Christ. So it's faith 
And because of the gospel, we have been forgiven. And now we have ongoing repentance. So we realize repentance is a recognition of that faith where God says righteousness has been given to you. Now, we've couched this in the plea that we make to others, the the loving plea that we make to others. We look at them across whoever your people are. Who are your people? Think of them. You look at them and you say, trust in Christ, have faith and repentance and believe and be ushered into a relationship with God. But I want you to think about it this way. Faith and repentance, not just in the horizontal, but turning back upon yourself also. Are you Martin Luther says all of the Christian life is one of repentance. All of the Christian life is preaching the gospel to yourself to believe. Are you also continually going through the, I think, um, biblical teachings of faith and repentance? It's not just something you're calling others towards. Are you trusting actively, presently in Christ's work on the cross for your righteousness and repenting and turning away from sin daily? And at the same time calling. And you're like, you say, come. And they're like, wait a second, aren't you dealing with it? Yes, I am. Well, both then, both of us, we're going to actively trust in faith and repentance and start walking towards God then. Both of us will do it together. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We'll be a mess together. Praise God for the gospel that he forgives mess, lavishes forgiveness upon messes like us. And now we can both, as Piper says, walk in gutsy guilt that we're forgiven and gutsy guilt to call others to this. So the second amazing emphasis of Peter is faith and repentance. So here's the deal. We've seen Peter emphasize Christ. We've seen the message, which is faith and repentance. And this is how he closes his sermon. The third facet, my favorite, hands down. Well, I can't say that. I love them all. I love all three of these. But what he's going to say in this closing part is this. What if you do? What if you do? What you're looking at the men of Israel? What if you do today, trust in Christ? Or for those that are in Christ right now, and you already have, what does that mean for me, Stuart? Remind me again, Fud, of the gracious benefits of being in Christ. He's going to give them four different benefits. Now they won't be on the screen. I'll, I'll enumerate them slowly if you want to write them down. But the fourth, the third, I should say. The third key facet of Peter's sermon is this, Peter's collection of benefits of faith and repentance. For those that do that, what are, what are the benefits that the Lord bestows upon us? And I literally don't know which one I love more than any of these. These are so, so good. That's how I feel. So look at verse 19 lovingly, graciously, not in, a, not in a horrible manner, not in a, I'm judgmental of you. I mean, who is Peter? Look at John chapter 20 and before that. He knows he's not any different than them. He loves them and he says, repent. Therefore, and look at this, and turn again, here it is, that your sins may be blotted out. This first benefit is this, your sins blotted out. This is a strong word used in the Greek, blotted. Very strong word. Alexepho can be translated lots of ways. Blotted out, wiped out, washed off, erased, obliterated. There's a couple times it's used in Revelation. 
Um, the first one is when he says, in Revelation where Jesus says, he's going to wipe away all your tears. The world that we live in is so filled with suffering. We, we, we can't even conceive of not feeling sinful inclinations and not feeling pain. And he's saying that heaven is so vastly different that when you get there, you will sin no more. You'll grieve your father no more. It won't grieve your heart anymore. You'll never sin and you'll never feel grief anymore. He's literally going to wipe away all of that. Think of the, the contrast between that and this. Same word. Obliterate the tears from you. Wipe away. Wash away. Erase all the tears from your eyes. It's the same word being used. Blots away all of your sin. Obliterates it. Never to be counted against you. Use it again in another place in Revelation. Um, it's in the, used in the negative sense, but this you'll feel the same weight. You know, in, in the Revelation, maybe you don't, or maybe you do, but he says that no one can ever blot away or wipe away your sin out of the book of life. Or your name, I'm sorry, your name out of the book of life. No one can wipe it away. No one can wash it away. No one can erase it. No one can obliterate it. It's there forever. So in the same sense, your sin has been totally wiped away forever. This first benefit, I mean, can you conceive? Even begin to think. All of your sin washed away. All of the stain, the vile stain of my sin, gone. What an amazing benefit. Innately, every one of us, atheist, theist, agnostic, Christian, or anybody else on that continuum, every one of us is constantly seeking forgiveness. It's it's put in us innately. We all are seeking forgiveness. Any storyteller that writes any kind of fiction story only writes a good one if they have a, 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 um, a person that feels or experiences some kind of redemption because it's innately in us. We're all seeking forgiveness. It's what every single one of us, Jesus has wired to want. We're wanting it. Some realize this and some push against it. Theist, atheist, agnostic, in their heart of hearts. What they're seeking is forgiveness. Specifically from the one that created them. And the benefit is this. The creator does it by Christ's work on the cross. And, I should say, coupled with forgiveness of sin is the amazing shame and guilt that you, we all carry on our shoulders, gone. Come to me, all you are have laid down, give you rest. So, all the forgiveness, guilt and shame, shame washed away. This is a, uh, reminds me of a, of a hymn called Rock of Ages. The guy's name is Augustus, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, I'll just go with it. Toplady, 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 whatever. Sounds like yogurt. Augustus Toplady says this in Rock of Ages. Writing on the amazingness of being our sins blotted away. Nothing in my hand I bring. There's no way I can earn salvation. Simply to your cross, the only way I can receive salvation. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Specifically to be dressed with the righteousness of Christ. I come naked, meaning nothing. Helpless I look to thee for grace. 
Foul, dirty, nasty, gross, foul to the fountain, capital F, I fly. The fountain is where I can be clean. Foul I f- to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Just an absolute understanding of the sinfulness that he has. And then amazed at all the sin blotted out. First, amazing benefit of those who practice faith and repentance in Christ. All the sin washed away. The next one, so good, verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Just ponder that. You don't read sentences like that in the Bible too often. And a benefit is times of refreshing may come to you specifically from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing, that word, anapsix, can be like translated as refreshment or rest or relief or respite being offered. Now, if you don't live a toilsome, toilsome life, the idea of refreshment being offered to you probably doesn't hit you as hard as those that work. Those that actually have toil. If your life is not full of toil, then your whole life is respite. Then maybe your desire for respite is certainly squashed or hindered. But for those that work, those that toil hard, when you finally get the refreshment or the respite or the relief, it's just like, ah. Oh. This is maybe a, the best illustration I can come up with, but I think of moms that watch children all day. And whenever you come up and you say, can I watch your child and you go take like a lot of hours for you, or your children, and you go take all these hours for yourself to have some refreshment and respite, like they always say, oh no, never, that, that sounds terrible. <laughs> they never say that, right? Yes, right now, please. I'm getting, uh, here's, uh, you're gone. Like there's everything, like they're gone, right? So on an infinitely greater scale, the toil that, that people that work jobs with their hands all day and, and need that time of refreshment night or moms that, that have to watch children all day or anybody that works and toils who knows the great ref- need for having that respite and relief on an infinitely greater scale, you don't have to toil anymore for your salvation. What Christ is offering is refreshment, relief. Now, Let's be careful. I want to point out what some commentators say and say why I disagree. They say that promise of refreshment is only at the eschaton, only at the end times, only when Jesus Jesus comes back. Look, at times of refreshment may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ. That's the second coming of the Christ, the second sending. And he's saying, so that refreshment is only then, not here. You don't ever get refreshment here. Refreshment is just then, at the very end. I disagree. I believe it's both and. The more you grow in your faith, the more you will see almost everything is both and. Almost. There's definitely some no's. But I think it's both here. I think it's both. I mean, what's the context here? Think of the context. A crippled man just got healed right now. Not in the eschaton. He's experiencing right now a change. So even in the immediate context that Peter's talking of, there's a great change that just happened. Not only that, I want you to see this. 
that times of refreshing may come. It says, from the presence of the Lord. This is literally that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the face of the Lord. The face of the Lord. That's not just heaven. There is a sense in which we experience being in the face of the Lord right now. I said this last week and I'm going to have to say it again. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. They have been huge, huge. I love 2 Corinthians in my life. So look at 2 Corinthians with me, chapter 4. And you will see the face being ushered into the presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Now, verse 4 Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4 is going to say what unbelievers can't see. And if unbelievers can't see it, believers can see it. Chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, which means we can. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what unbelievers can't see. But then in verse 6, he's actually going to stay it. Straight out, what believers can see, verse 6. For God has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, here it is, into hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. So there, there is a sense in which we can be in the presence of the face of Jesus Christ here. And so I want to to be clear here. So refreshment that the Lord's offering isn't just like, here's a really air-conditioned room with whatever you like to drink and unlimited Netflix. that's, That's not refreshment that he's saying. He's saying the refreshment being offered to you is the only thing that can give you real refreshment. Literally, presence in the face of Christ. Right now and in the eschaton. That's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable benefit. Right now, refreshment, relief, respite, literally in the face of the one that knows me better, in the presence of the face of Christ is what's being offered to me. Astounding. I mean, unbelievable. This promised present refreshment can be so sweet. Walking with Jesus daily can become so unbelievably awesome. I mean, your highest and most sweetest joy and it's offered to you. Right now as a believer in Christ. It's just an overflow of love for Christ that you receive this refreshment. I want to read you an excerpt of a preacher that lived in the 1500s. This is the description of this preacher who, as the commentator says, experienced this face-to-face presence, of course spiritually, with him. That he just exuded sweet joy. And it starts with the word whilst, and so you know it's awesome. Whilst he was in the ministry at Edinburgh, he shined as a great light through the whole land. This is talking about a man, just a preacher in the 1500s. The power and efficacy, efficacy just means efficiency-ness, but you don't say that, you say efficacy. The power and the efficiency-ness or efficacy of the spirit within him most sensibly accompanied this man the Every, word, every time he preached the word. His speech and his preaching was in such evident and demonstration of the Spirit 
by, that by the shining of his face and that shower of divine influence, God influence on him, wherewith, good word, the word spoken from him was accompanied. It was such easiness for the hearer to perceive that this preacher had been on the mount with God that week. He preached ordinarily with such life and such power. And the word spoken by him was accompanied with such unbelievable manifest presence that it was evident to all the hearers he was not alone at the work. Some of the most stout-hearted hearers of this man were ordinarily made to tremble when he preached. And by having these doors of their heart that were formerly had been bolted against Jesus Christ as by an irresistible power broke them open and the secrets of their heart made manifest. They went away under convictions and carried with them the undeniable proof of Christ speaking through this man. I want that. Just, just give me a fraction of that to be said about the way I live my life. I think that that's all the, also a description of the way Peter's preaching. And... Here's the thing. That's not, that's just unnamed preacher. I, I, I didn't put his name. From the 1500s that none of us had ever heard. I read his name, I didn't even heard, I heard of him. You can have that in your life. This is the same way that you can walk and live in the face-to-face presence of refreshment that you receive from the Lord. And it just exudes out to people. That's the second benefit. First one, All your sins washed away. Second one, daily promised presence of refreshment with the Lord. Third one, this is so good. I mean, listen, maybe you didn't hear the news, but in the tragedy of the awful news this this morning in Florida, where some wild man goes in and shoots up a bar and kills 50 people. We live in a sick, broken world. Just constant reminders, especially when our news is 24 wired and you can get anything on any feed now. You hear about everything. We hear about everything. And it's just a constant reminder of, man, this world's so broken. Man, this world's so broken. It causes me to just yearn for heaven. Yearn for heaven. What a broken, messed up place to live. This third promise, this third benefit changes the game. Look at verse 20 to 21. That he may send the Christ, appointed for Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time, here it is, for the restoring of all things. Okay, so restoring of all things doesn't just mean you individually being restored from your and mine radical sinfulness. It means everything. This broken, broken world is going to be made like it was before the fall in the garden where everything was perfect but even better from a garden to a city it's the restoring of all things the way the world was supposed to be before the fall, fall and sin entered in will be there one day it's going to be absolutely amazing so it is referring to us individually the re- restoration of all things of our glorification but it's also restoring of all things being brought back to him as he is the one who initiates it and brings us back to him. To quote the great theologian David Crowder, here is our king, here is our love, here is our God who's come to bring us back to him. He's the one, he is Jesus, where he restores all things to himself. 
I don't want you to make any mistake here. As we walk through this messed up world, listen, rescue's coming. And King Jesus is bringing it. One day, this broken world and all of the brokenness we put back together. You, your life, this world, and we will be in heaven and all the tears will be wiped away and we'll never cry a tear again. We will experience no form of suffering ever. Our king puts it all back together and brings us back to him. That's the third benefit. I mean, aren't these unbelievable? All your sin wiped away, refreshment, ever refreshment being offered to you. One day, everything put back together. Here's the last one. It's down at the end. Look at verse uh, 25b and following. Look at the and. And in your offspring. So this is the promise made to Abraham. It says, Abraham, in your offspring, quoting Genesis 22, 18, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And it said, God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him, Jesus, to you first to bless you. Fourth benefit is this. God intends to bless you. God intends to bless you. Wipe away your sin, give you times of refreshment, restore all things, and bless you. God intends to bless you. Now, the way he chooses to bless you is his prerogative. We all hear blessing, we're like, oh, that sounds great. But we all run to material things. I guarantee you, your mind did that. Note how he blesses you. Has nothing to do with material things. Verse 25, he's going to bless you by turning everyone away from your wickedness. That has nothing to do with material things. That has everything to do with your heart. The blessing here, it has, if you went to monetary things, God's going to bless you by calling you to being more sanctified, sinning less, not doing wicked things, but instead living in a Christ-like way is his form of blessing you. That's the benefit of faith and repentance. He intends to bless you by making you like him. Which, if you're real, is better than some kind of monetary, physical blessing. Those things are fleeting. Those things are gone. It's not a material sense. It's a spiritual sense. He blesses you by making you holy, turning you from your wickedness. Now, I want to conclude this way. Peter is preaching to Jews, Israelites. Look at verse 13. Men of Israel, first to them of men of Israel. He knows that they're well acquainted with the scriptures. And then boldly, and maybe you would say bluntly, tells them in verses 13 and 14 and 15, you delivered Jesus to be killed. Not like you who are Jewish, like we would say it today. Literally, he's in that, he's in that town. You are the specific people that stood there saying, give us Barabbas, crucify him. It's literally like you are the ones that said it, crucify him. It's not like the Jewish people said it. He's just talking to Jews. He's looking at the literal people that said, crucify him, crucify him. Boldly, and perhaps bluntly, says, you delivered Jesus to be killed. You denied Jesus and the Messiah and said he wasn't. You received him back. You did not receive him back from Pilate. You wanted Barabbas, the murderer, instead of Jesus. 
You killed Jesus, the author of life. That's what Peter says to them. Call the men of Israel and then give that major indictment. And then later on, list the forefathers, Moses and Samuel and Abraham, because they are Jews, know that they know all the stories about who they are. And then he tells them in verse 25, after he lists Moses and Samuel and Abraham, he looks at them and says, and you know who you are? this. This is astounding after the indictment of verses 13 and 14. He says in verse 25, you're the, not the sinners, not the terrible people, the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with the forefathers. Think of this. Indicts them like crazy and still says the sons and daughters. Still part of the family. You are the son. So in essence, what Peter is telling them, you have literally, no one else can say this. You have committed the worst crime in human history, killing Jesus. We can all agree that that's the worst crime in human history. Nothing can get worse than that. He was absolutely purely innocent. He looks at those people and says, you committed the worst crime of human history. And God is saying to you today, here's salvation through Jesus. In other words, I want you to hear this. God is telling them, I know what you've done, but I don't hold it over. I love you always, and I'm willing to call you sons and daughters today. It's precisely people like you that I came and died for. I want you to think about this. If it's precisely people like them that he came and died for, well, then it's absolutely true that it's precisely people like us he also willingly came and died for. God is telling us the exact same thing. The servant was sent for you. The righteous and holy one was sent for you. The glorified one was sent for you. The author of life was sent for you. The prophet Messiah was sent for you. And he wants you to believe and have faith in him and repent from your sin. And he was sent so that your sins may be blotted out. He was sent so that you could finally have times of refreshment face to face in his presence. He was sent so that you could finally and ultimately be blessed by him by walking away from wickedness into Christ-likeness. And he is coming again one day to restore all things. That should make you want to scream out, hallelujah. You don't even speak Hebrew. It just means praise be to God. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. That he would save sinners like them, precisely them, and therefore me too. What an unbelievable message Peter preaches, not only to them, but to us. And so we've gone to a time of response here, where if you feel any a kinship to these particular people who are radical sinners, who committed the worst crime in human history, certainly he's telling us, you're precisely the people I've come for, and extending to you forgiveness, and extending to you radical, radical invitation into life forever. And you can now have all your sins blotted out. Or if you are in Christ, all of your sins have been blotted out and you've been invited into everlasting times of refreshment. What?
what a time to respond. Let's worship Christ for what he's done for us and this amazing message. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are, what you've done. And we are just, just astounded. Like the people standing there watching the miracle. They're in astonishment. And we are at what you've done. Be with us now as we respond. God, I pray that our worship would be Christ-honoring. And we would consider all these things. Who you are and what you've done. What you've done. And we give you the glory for it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.